I hope you had an interesting time this last week. Uh, if you were here last week, uh, contemplating different aspects of renunciation, a couple of you have mentioned to me that actually there were some things that came out of that session that kind of um, uh, touched back into something that you remembered from earlier in your practice or otherwise. It's very interesting the way things are kind of cyclic and uh, we hear a topic and maybe it means something and then we forget about it and then a couple years later comes back or 10 years later and there's some different response to it. So I hope maybe that's another aspect of what you're seeing. I, sh- I unashamedly use the word renunciation even though it's not a common word in the English language and I find that it often actually resonates for people when they get over if there's any strange response to that particular word. So today, um, in case you're not aware of the series, is our second out of three sessions on um, letting go in lay life. I realize now I put the tagline on, could renunciation be fun? Maybe that's why you're all here. Um, So I promise there will be some kind of fun things today, I guess, because today we get to look at the mind and consider um, ways that we can start working with our habit patterns and, and other things. First, I wanted to read this list um, of, I don't know, it, it felt a little bit like a link to me between last week and this week, in that we talked last week about the kind of outer physical world that we live in, and this week it'll be more about the mental world. So I guess somewhere in between those is speech. And there's a sutta where the, um, the main point of the sutta is to tell the ten top suitable topics for speech. But um, before that, we get a long list of things that the Buddha doesn't consider very suitable for speech. And I thought you might be interested to hear that. So the Buddha says, these topics are not suitable. Conversations about kings, robbers, ministers of state, armies, alarms, and battles, food and drink, clothing, furniture, garlands, and scents, relatives, vehicles, villages, towns, cities, the countryside, women and heroes, the gossip of the street and the well, tales of the dead, tales of diversity, the creation of the world and of the sea, and talk of whether things exist or not. (laughs) So that pretty much sums the newspaper up, I think. Um, of course we have to talk about those topics some of the time, but then that's all a setup for the ten proper topics of conversation, which is talk on modesty, on contentment, on seclusion, on non-entanglement, on arousing persistence, on virtue, concentration, discernment, release, and the knowledge and vision of release. I remember this is from monastics. But nonetheless, um, I would suggest that if that latter set of ten, you never talk about any of those things, um, we could probably usefully add in some of those. I mean, we could talk about virtue, right? That's not so bad. Non-entanglement, contentment. Do you ever sit around and talk about what you're content about? Or do you talk about what you're complaining about? <laughs> so these, these things affect the mind. I think that's the, you know, the point. The specifics aren't the point. It's more like how are we engaging our mind? 
and are we engaging in things that kind of stir it up and add things and make it complicated or things that are more calming, more easeful. I mean, if you want ease, the path is ease. <laughs> so the path somehow has to include that. So let's, let's look now at um, the mind. One thing that we already talked about last week, actually, in terms of uh, something that comes up in the mind when we contemplate renunciation is this word samvega, which is said to be the proximate cause for wanting to let go. And samvega is a word that means something like spiritual urgency is often how it's translated in its kind of powerful form. It's that feeling, you know, when people really sell their house and go live in the forest, (laughs) things like that. But in a milder form, samvega is a sense of dissatisfaction with the things that were offered through society that are supposed to make us happy. And we have this sinking suspicion that they're not really doing that. They're not living up to their promise. And so something in us says, why don't I find another way? So this is actually a very strong force. We may not be tuned into it or tapped into it, but it does exist in every human heart I've found. And it, it can be very strong when we really open up a strong current of it. I mean, it's because it's the force that ultimately overcomes all of our worldly attachments. You know, it's the desire to be free. And so it can move mountains, actually, and it can allow us to let go of a job, a home, a relationship. It may or may not be necessary or relevant for you to do that, but this force in the heart can do that. And think about what the Buddha gave up before he went on his quest. Um, So yeah, it's useful to observe, I think I pointed this out last time, this movement of the mind that is the movement toward. You know, we might just call it sort of desire and and put it in the category of, oh, that's related to the cause of suffering. But that doesn't really do it justice. You know, the ability of the mind to move toward things uh, goes all the way from, you know, craving and, you know, clinging and that kind of aspect of it, and that is, the, of course, the cause of suffering, all the way down more subtly to um, movements of mind where we're called toward things, or where we're inspired by things, or where we have an aspiration or a, a kind of a leaning toward um, an intention, even an intention is a very mild form of desire. So it's very useful to include this in your practice and start noticing in the mind, what is this movement toward where we want something? And when is it useful and when is it not useful? Because if we're not free, there are things that we need to want and to to get and to um, help us on the path. Okay, so last time we looked at material or external renunciation, letting go of possessions, letting go of busyness, Um, various activities. And so today it's more about what I'm calling mental renunciation. What does that really refer to? Um, It refers largely to the habits and patterns of the mind. And so we start asking this question, what is needed about the mind? I suggested that in the meditation. If you're sitting there on the cushion and you know it's meditation time and it's a nice setting with a beautiful surrounding and nice people, do you really need to be thinking about that, you know, problem with the car that you have to deal with next week or something? It's not needed, right, at this moment. It's not going to be solved in the next half an hour. 
that doesn't mean that the mind just stops doing it because you say, oh, that's not needed, and so it doesn't always work that way. But at least if we know that it's not necessary for us to be ruminating on a certain thing, uh, that's a helpful, already a helpful foundation for being able to let go. If we don't know, we wouldn't let go of that. That's one of the best parts of mindfulness training, right, is that we're trained just to pay attention to what's going on in the mind, and then all of a sudden we see all these things that we didn't really know were going on in the mind because we weren't paying attention before, and then we have some some choice about them. So Joseph Goldstein uses this definition of renunciation. He calls it non-addiction, which I think is interesting. Of course, he's not only referring to um, you know, the external material addiction that people uh, work with directly, but you know, all of our minds are addicted in certain ways. We have our favorite things that we think about, right? And we have our favorite ways of being in the world. You know, we may know, for example, that we have a very judgmental mind, or that we tend to have a fearful mind, an anxious mind, or that we tend to be angry or greedy or envious, um, whatever it is. And so that means that in some sense, we keep going to that. You know, that's like our go-to thing. And if we don't have a choice about that, that's essentially an addiction to a certain way of approaching the world. Especially when we start interacting with people who approach it differently, we can realize, oh, that's not necessary. I might not want what they've got either, but, um, you know, there are different approaches. There may be other options. A friend of mine sat a long retreat and began asking about each thought, is this needed? And the answer was almost invariably no, because it was retreat and not very many thoughts were needed. Of course, in daily life, we have to think and do all the things we need to do. Um, But there is a clear distinction between thoughts that are neutral or functional or useful and thoughts that are really more discursive, that are about storytelling and self-assertion. Those are kind of the two that we can look for as not really needed. So storytelling is very rarely useful. Long stories about why things are true and what this person is thinking and what they're going to do if I do that. Um, Yeah, not so useful. And also self-assertion. It's been shown neurologically that if the mind is quiet for a certain amount of time, there's a part of the brain that tends to get activated first. And it's the part that um, tells you something about who you are. Like the one that says, like when you have those thoughts that say, just out of the blue, you know, I really don't like driving on the freeway. It's like, why did you have that thought? (laughs) You know, it's because at some point, if the mind doesn't quite have anything to focus on, it starts creating an identity. That's what makes us secure. You can watch this process happening. It's just a habit, but it is... um, something that the brain does and the mind does. And then if you believe that and you say, and you you jump on it and you say, yeah, that's right. And you know, the freeways have been getting more and more crowded around here over the last few years. Why don't they do something about that? I'm going to vote for, you know, and you're off, right? All because you believe that random thought that said, you know, I don't like driving on the freeway. You could just say, hmm, that thought wasn't really needed and go back to whatever you were doing at the time. So it's useful to distinguish between thoughts that are neutral and informative and functional and thoughts that are about storytelling or self-assertion. Philip Moffat has three 
internal renunciation exercises in one of his books that I, I kind of like, so I pulled them out here. You can, if you want, you can try these out. Um, so he's, he frames them as intentions that you can practice with. And so the first is, I renounce being the star of my own movie. Right? We do this a lot. We're all the star of our own movie. We're the, we're the central actor in our, the drama of our life. Of course, everybody else is the central actor in the drama of their life, and we're just some supporting character for them. But that's okay. Um, so we can renounce being the star of our own movie. And, just, and that doesn't mean that you never think about how things are going in your life, but you, know, you just notice the thoughts where you're the star. And it's like, and now our hero walks into the bedroom and you know, you get, you've got that feeling in your mind, right? So just, just letting go of those kinds of thoughts. And then the second one is, I renounce measuring the success of my life by how many of my desires are met. This is a very interesting one. How do you decide that it was a good day? Usually it's if things went well and you got what you wanted. That was a good day. Um, but what if it was a good day if you were really mindful, even if it was a terrible in terms of how many things you got that you wanted? Or it was a good day if you were um, very ethical or very compassionate. Now, of course, that'll tend to make the day more pleasant. Um, but it's interesting. Uh, you can start noticing what measures you're using, essentially. And mostly we use whether or not our desires are met. And so then that feeds back into this loop of, well, i got to get what I want, I've got to figure it out. Um, and it's one of those wrap wheels that we get on. And also, I often ask this of groups, and I'm very confident about asking this question, how many of you expected that what you're doing right now in your life, that was something that you planned for, and it was going to be this way? No, not a single hand, right? Maybe if you're very young, this is the case. But for the most of us, there have been a few twists and turns, and where we are right now was not exactly what we were thinking earlier. And it's, it's okay, you know, we got here by whatever we got. Um, some of my friends have careers that didn't exist when they were in school. They couldn't have studied for that because that topic didn't exist yet. Right? And so you know, that's often how it goes. So thinking that meeting our desires and making our plans work out is not exactly the way life actually unfolds. It's not really in line with how reality works. And so that's another reason to kind of let it go as a standard measurement. This is a hard one. I'm not saying, in fact, the first one's hard, too. These are actually quite serious practices. But it's useful to start thinking about how we measure things. Because how we measure things, what does they say? What gets measured gets managed. So what we're measuring is what we're managing somehow in our minds, what we're directing our attention and energy toward. So be careful what you're measuring. And the last one from Philip, I renounce my attachment to being right. That's a hard one um, because we yeah, we really like to be right. And um, we have attachments to being right in different ways and in different areas. Like some of us are okay with not being right about, you know, whether the laundry got done this week or something. They can, you know, it's not a big deal, suffer around the house. But they really have to be right about the politics. 
And other people are like, well, you know, whatever, I don't know necessarily, but how come you ate the last tomato out of the refrigerator? I was watching that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> something like that. Like, where are we really precise and where are we not? Even just a few days ago, I was on a hike with someone and we were doing a trail where um, I had never been on it and he had only been on it once. And so we were somewhat navigating as we went along. And we were trying to do a loop in order to go out some way and then get back without doing the entire thing. And, and we did sort of manage to do that, but about three quarters of the way around, we came to a split in the trail. And I thought we hadn't gotten all the way back yet and still had a little farther to go. And he thought we had already been by that particular place and had chosen a different fork before. I mean, it's just one of those things when you're out. And I was really sure that I was right about that. <laughs> and I found it interesting that there was this urge in my mind to, you know, to say, no, it's, it didn't matter. Actually, whichever way we believed it was, we both agreed we were supposed to go down this particular branch of the trail. But I thought it was somehow important in my mind that <laughs> we understood what the bigger picture was that we were doing. And I was like, why does this matter? But, you know, it was something that my mind got attached to. So I guess I have a thing about, I don't know, orientation or something, getting that correct. So we can observe which areas we're more attached to than others, because it causes a lot of suffering for other people if we're really attached to being right. Ourselves, too, in the end. And then I've also added um, one of my own, which is, uh, I renounce knowing how my path should unfold. So this is in the spiritual realm. Um, we often have an idea, you know, we've maybe read the maps, or we know what we're working on. I'm working on my anger by doing metta right now, and so I'm going to be more loving four months from now. Um, <laughs> whatever, whatever it is, you know. And then, you know, even though we're working on something in particular, like some other thing will unfold. And you have to go with that, you know, you have to go with how it's actually unfolding. Or we think we're on a nice track, and we, we know what we're doing, and then, you know, bam, some memory comes into our mind and suddenly we have to work with something else than we thought. So it's very helpful not to have too many ideas about how your past should unfold, just keep doing the practices. But these are all mental renunciations. They have to do with managing the way our mind is constantly interacting and working with the world. That's our life, actually. I mean, what your life is how your mind is responding to inputs at the most basic level. And so we have to start looking at that pretty carefully and letting go of the ones that aren't so helpful. There are really way more options than we often realize. So we're now into the realm of working with our patterns. If you try to do these renunciation practices, you're going to see where your patterns are. You'll see how you measure things, what you're attached to. Betsy? Can you read through the four again? Okay. Um, I renounce being the star of my own movie. I renounce measuring the success of my life by how many of my desires are met. I renounce my attachment to being right. And I renounce knowing how my path should unfold. If you, if you try to do those, you will learn a lot about how your mind is interacting with the world. And so we start to see a lot of um, patterns. Some of them are okay, and some of them are not very helpful. <laughs> and um, this is normal. So the, these patterns have developed because 
we thought they'd be useful at one point. Often they've developed somewhat unconsciously or a long time ago. Um, and now that we're you know, more adult and more mindful, we, we can see them. And that doesn't necessarily, though, mean that we have control over them or we can just decide you know, how to do it. We're, we're this sort of entangled mess of different patterns interacting. So the good news, of course, is that patterns can be changed. Otherwise, there would be little point in doing spiritual practice. Um, and we can really turn them into something that's more wholesome, and then we'll experience greater happiness, regardless of actually what's coming in. It has a lot more to do with how we respond and how we uh, experience the things that are coming in. So this is good news. Uh, a number of teachers have talked about how when you start working with a particular pattern uh, that you see, there's kind of a itself a pattern that you go through when you do that. There's a process that you have to go through. And it's described various different ways by different teachers, but there's a sort of a common theme, and I've observed it in my own practice, so I'll share kind of a, an amalgamation of what they say, which is that, first of all, uh, the patterns are just going, and we have no, uh, no, we don't notice them, so we're just behaving that way. So these are um, the ones that maybe other people can see, but we can't see, because <laughs> um, you know we have we have a few of those. Um, so there's sort of no awareness, and that's okay. That's where we start, and then we develop attention, and at some point we see uh, that we have this way of reacting or responding or this pattern that we that we keep doing. You know, every time I'm with that person, I seem to fall into, you know, conceited con talking or something like that. And so we start to see that, but we don't have enough strength of attention to even see other possibilities. So it's like we, what we see is that we look back, and three seconds ago we, we did the behavior pattern. We're like, oh. And then the next time we meet them, two seconds ago, we, we did the behavior pattern. And like we, we see it's there, but we, we don't have enough strength of attention so I've talked about this before, a lot of what we're doing is raising our strength of attention so that patterns are happening more down here. But if our attention is here and the patterns are this strong, they just overwhelm our attention and we just do them. So that's a lot of what um, basic mindfulness practice is about, is raising up that strength of attention. So then um, the third step is that we begin to see other possibilities. Like we see that we have an option but we still don't have the strength to do it. And this is a painful point. So that's where we watch ourselves doing something that we wish we weren't doing. Um, you know, we see it, we think, no, I'm not going to, and then we lose mindfulness a second later and we say the thing that we didn't want to say. Um, but luckily we do get past that and we have that first moment where we're doing something, we feel the pattern starting to happen, we, we see another option and oh, we do it <laughs> to our surprise. We don't snap at somebody or we smile and say, oh, thank you, instead of err <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, something else happens. And not always necessarily what we plan or figured out ahead of time. It's just but we have the ability to do something else. And that is actually a really important moment. Now, the next time you may go back to the pattern for a while, back and forth, but um, that first moment where we did something besides the original pattern that was fixed is called liberation. <laughs> That's the moment of liberation. We're free at that moment. We, we didn't have to do what we did before. 
and something else emerged. So it's really good. And we can see this after we've seen it a few times, we start gaining confidence that we'll be able to keep practicing in that way. And this is really kind of a fruitful way of practicing. This is from Rodney Smith. Um, The energy needed to investigate our pain and our personal narrative and free the contracted mind is considerable, but there is no more joyous or interesting work. The heart contains all the energy necessary to complete this task, but only when our attention is not fractured by our defense mechanisms. And defense mechanisms is another name for what I was calling patterns. So then he goes on to talk about how a lot of these patterns are based on fear and doubt, which you'll see when you start investigating them. And so, um, you know, at first we we see them and it's sort of painful to see them, and maybe we feel the fear and the doubt that we didn't feel before when we were kind of just covering it up with the pattern. So it feels like in some ways our life is getting more painful when we work with our mental patterns. But, um, you know, once we've set that intention, it is going to unfold, and we don't have to worry that it's not going to get there. Uh, you know, repeated, repeated work on a given pattern, it will eventually change. Now we don't know how. Remember, I let I renounce knowing how my path is going to unfold. So, uh, when when you see a pattern and you decide you're going to work with not always reacting in that way, you can't actually know what it's going to look like when that bond breaks something else will emerge. It'll be better, but you can't you can't decide in advance how you're going to be. Essentially what we're doing here is renouncing greed, hatred, and delusion, which are the best things to renounce. So this is good. Okay, so that you, this is a poem that's um, by Portia Nelson, autobiography in five short chapters. I walk down the street There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. (laughs) So this is a lot of what it's like to... um, work with patterns is that um, it feels kind of repetitive and yet uh, it's different each time. It's a little different each time and these things, it's very interesting to watch the mind kind of loosen up and start to, it's like working on a knot underwater or something and it starts to slowly kind of loosen and the strands come out and it's, it's very gratifying to see these things slowly dissolve. Actually one of the images used in the suttas is a, a a ship that gets pulled up onto the shore during the season when it's not used and it gets subjected to the rain and the wind and the sun and the ropes on the ship um, decay to the point where they just kind of fall apart with the salt and, and everything else 
And it's a little bit like that when we look at our patterns and we keep looking and we keep looking and we keep intending and we keep opening and at some point it just, you know, just falls away. So I want to talk, maybe the last subject we'll cover tonight is um, this this topic of uh, what's called vibhava tanha. That's a complicated Pali word that tanha you may recognize as uh, craving. Um, and so that's, you know, thirsting. Uh, that is the, the cause of suffering. Um, and the, there are particular types of craving identified and one of them is this vibhavatanha, and it's translated usually as craving for non-becoming. And I mention it here because when we start working with the mind in this way, with the idea that we're going to identify our mental patterns and soften the ones that are not helpful to us, we can start to develop some aversion to them, or some aversion to the way the mind is so slow. <laughs> the mind is like a very stupid, um, slow, I don't know what else words to put on there, but, you know, we see it again and again, we think, I can't believe I'm still not learning this. Um, And it can be a little bit discouraging, or we can start to get a little impatient and say, I just want to get rid of this. You know, I want, I want, I'm tired of seeing myself, I'm tired of seeing these patterns, Um, you know, it would be better just not to have them. And so we can sort of subtly turn toward uh, pushing away uh, patterns or thoughts about the self. And the Buddha knew this would happen, and so he has this interesting set of verses. They're actually very deep, but um, we can probably get them just from our own practice. So he says, bhikkhus, or for us practitioners, held by two kinds of views, Some people hold back and some overreach. Only those with vision see. How do some people hold back? Some people enjoy being, delight in being, are satisfied with being. When the Dharma is taught to them for the cessation of being, or for renunciation perhaps, their minds do not enter into it or acquire confidence in it or settle upon it or become resolved upon it. Thus do some hold back. So it's interesting that this is about clinging to the world, clinging to sense pleasures, clinging to self, you know, the usual things. And so he calls that holding back, <laughs> is when we're stuck on the world. But then, for Vivavatana, he says, how do some people overreach? Now some are troubled, ashamed, and disgusted by this very same being, and they rejoice in the idea of non-being, um, asserting that to the degree that this is annihilated and destroyed, it would be beautiful. I'm summarizing a little bit. Thus do some overreach. So it overreaches, it goes too far to want these things not to be there, to push them away, to say the self is bad, to say, you know, I don't want to have a personality, I should just become a bland nothing because I want to be patternless. You know, that's that's sort of, you can go too far. So he calls that overreaching. And... Interestingly, the one who, how do those with vision see? Here, a person sees what has come to be as having come to be. So if it's there, you see that it's there. Having seen it thus, 
he or she practices the course of turning away, dispassion, and the cessation of what has come to be. So that doesn't mean that everything's going to vanish, although it's really great when that happens. Um, But it it just means that you see things as they are, and you don't have an opinion like, here's how it is, and I like this aspect of it. You know, that's the that's the holding back, or here's how it is, and it shouldn't be that way. It should be something different. That's the overreaching. It actually just is how it is. It can't be any other than how it is at this moment. It's conditioned. The conditions of this moment brought this. Um, then there is choice um, within what's arriving from into this moment. There's, of course, choice in our mind about how we respond to it. So what this practice does is it starts to separate out for us what's the part that we don't have any control over, which is the part that's arriving from past karma. That's the pattern that's coming in. That's the stuff that's already been set in motion. The body is said to be old karma. (laughs) So feelings in the body, for example. And then we also see that there is a choice. Remember? Remember the autobiography of five chapters? You keep looking, you keep watching, and something changes. You see different options. You see different ways to do it. We do have influence, not only on this moment, but on the future, both in this moment and on the future. Um, So we start to see where we have influence and where we don't. And this helps greatly in terms of wanting and not wanting, because it's pointless to want or not want things that are determined. And it's, it's not good practice to have no opinion about things that we do have a choice about. You know, we're not supposed to just accept things that we have a choice about. We can aim them toward what's good, but things that we don't have a choice about, it's dukkha to want them to be different. So this practice can start to separate those two components of the way experience unfolds. It becomes very profound. Um, so it's useful to start distinguishing that. And it's really, you don't have to learn anything complicated, theoretical. You just do it through observation of your own experience. You start to see which is the part that's arriving and which is the part that my mind is adding through its response. At a very simple level, what's the easiest way to practice this? Distinguish between the experience and the knowing of it. So whatever's arriving is the experience and the knowing of it is the mind meeting it. And the first one we don't have much choice about and the second one we do. And that will change, of course, what arrives in the future. Does that make some sense? Some of you are nodding. So we don't want to fall into, through this practice of watching our patterns and seeing the way in which we're continually desiring and wanting and not wanting and creating a self and all that. We don't want to fall into, oh, this is this was horrible. <laughs> um, it's not so bad to get disenchanted with it and realize that it's not going to be the source of happiness. Um, that's useful. That's a functional part of the path. But if it turns into aversion, um, that's not good. So it's actually also an opportunity to cultivate compassion. It's like this is it. This is this is our life. <laughs> you know, this body, this mind, these patterns. Um, this is what we've got to work with. And the good news is, it's enough, and we have enough to meet it. You are going to have all the right experiences that you need to have to free the heart. And you have the ability to develop enough attention and enough wisdom and enough compassion to meet all of that and let it go. 
both of those things are true. I guess you might have to go on faith at first, but the more you do these practices that I talked about today, the more you'll see, yeah, that's true, actually. But it is a process, and it takes some time to work with these patterns. So, yeah, maybe I'll wind up there, and uh, this is our our internal renunciation of the, the world, of the way we've been habituated to respond a lot, which causes a lot of our suffering. And then next week we'll talk explicitly about the deepest kind of renunciation of who we think we are, the self, the identity. Are there any questions? Yeah. Uh, who is the author of the list of the four things to renunciate? Philip so Moffat. Philip Moffat is the first three. Okay. It's a book called, what is it called? It's like it some, uh, I think it's his second book, From Emotional Chaos to Clarity. But maybe it's in Dancing with Life also, I don't know. But that's, I read it in the second one, it has a picture of a seashell on the front. Hi. So I've been, after talking last week about desire, I mean, we all know that desire actually is uncomfortable and is suffering. But I think that I'm curious about the, the tendency to search for desire. You know, like when a catalog comes, and I'll, be, I'll look. To, we look through it, I'm looking for something to want. <laughs> Or, what could know, I want out of this? I'm going shopping and it's not, you know, like I need something. I'm just browsing. I'm looking for something to want. Yeah. And to me, the most extreme form of that is porn. Mm-hmm. Pornography. It's creating desire for something that the viewer won't get. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Because we have distorted ideas of what will bring satisfaction. Um, I used to work in the uh, I wasn't directly myself in the technology industry, I, but I was a, uh, an analyst of technologies. And I observed in the high-tech world that um, a lot of the next gadget is created desire by the tech companies who want to sell the next version of their product. So they make you feel dissatisfied with the iPhone 6.8, and they tell you you need the 7.8 or whatever it is. And, you know, it's not like... It, it's not out of date. They could have kept making that for six more years, but they make a desire for it after well, a year. The whole theory of advertising is to manufacture, manufacture desire. desire. Absolutely, and this is what's r- wiping out ourselves. the environment through <laughs> creation. Of, I mean, it's just an external manifestation of what you've observed in yeah. in the mind itself. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it has to do with what I talked about last week, where. Uh, I remember I distinguished between the ending of the desire and the getting of what we want. And so we've got those, we we don't see the separation between those. And so we think that getting what we want is um, is the satisfaction, essentially. And so we have this idea that desire and then satisfying it is the path to happiness, and that someday we're going to get all of our desires satisfied, or that I don't know what it is. We're going to be able to do it perfectly. Every desire we have will instantly be satisfied. I'm not sure what the theory is. It's good to ask your mind that when you're pursuing a desire. But yeah, there's something about, yeah, we create the desire and then we fulfill it. Um, This can be used skillfully. 
believe it or not. So one of the things I said earlier is that we should watch the movement toward and find skillful ways to use it, have aspirations, have intentions. I mean, eventually those will settle out, because as you said, that wanting is always a little bit painful. But even this tendency to create something and then get desire, get satisfaction from letting it go, um, I've seen used in advanced meditators through the creation of uh, concentration, which is a created state. So people who are jhana meditators, for example, amazing states, they're great, just they're, if you're going to create something, why not create jhana, <laughs> you know? And, but one of the interesting things about jhana is as pleasant and as wonderful as it is, it's more interesting to watch it fall apart. So we create these things in order to see what happens when they fall apart. We see that uh, they were impermanent, they were slightly tense, there is actually a little bit of tension in creating jhana, and they're not about you. And so the wisdom that comes from that is, of course, much deeper than seeing impermanent suffering and not-self about a donut. You know, it's like if you see that about the fifth jhana, <laughs> it's more impactful on the heart. And so that's a way we can use this qual- this property of creating desire, creating something, and then watching it fall apart. Create the path, <laughs> and then let the path go. Yeah, heavy. Um, so about, I was just thinking about that. I really liked the thing in the meditation about do I need, is this, what was it, do I need this thought? Is this needed? Is this needed? That was great, especially for me tonight. But, so, and I totally get, you know, about like if you're in the present, like really, like almost always that kind of solves everything. But I'm just wondering if you have anything to say about sort of the role of, um, Maybe not when you're meditating, but like if somebody's behaving in a hurtful way, like telling yourself a story, to me, I I mean, I guess I'm struggling a little bit with, you know, if there is a positive role. Like on one hand, okay, this is how it is, Mm -hmm. and like it's their thing, you know, and I'm still here and where I am, like, you know, I'm sort of just present and there's leaves on the tree and I can just be here and be fine, right? And on the other hand, um, in some ways it seems like there is maybe a role for for telling yourself a story about like like what is going, like how, how could this person be doing this? Because, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know. If you're going to tell stories, tell good ones. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Tell a story about how they they're suffering, and that's why yeah. this is coming about. Okay, yeah, so that's what I'm wondering. And, like, do you, yeah, so do you think you're, I mean, that's what I tend to do. I think, it's better, to than, do. I think it's better than complaining or getting yourself wrapped up in something. Yeah. So if it's something that eases your mind relative to where it would have been otherwise, it's a step in the right direction. Because it seems, I mean, it seems like there's some compassion in there and then some like real sort of heart open, potentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's yeah, tricky, if, but... If, yeah, if that's what your mind comes up with as a way to reduce the struggle uh, around that situation, then it's 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 helpful to you. And then just, um, so create that pattern. You know, cr- when I see this, then I say, okay, they're suffering, yeah. I feel compassion. That can be a little sequence, and you can practice that mm-hmm. and make that the habit instead of, say, anxiety or anger. And um, and then at some point, 
that pattern will change also, maybe into something else and eventually settle into something else. But it's a step-by-step process. Yeah. So it sounds okay. Yeah. Did I see your hand, Bob? Oh, no, I was just thinking about one of the things, part of that process for me had been from going from being really judgmental mind to just simply the wondering mind. Just, I wonder. I wonder, what yeah. What that story is. Something and open there, instead of closed. Going to the not, know, not knowing mind mm-hmm. has been really helpful for me to okay, move away yeah. from aversion, wondering and not knowing. Yeah, so we start to see little sequences that we can engage in. These are skillful. If they're moving the mind toward more peace, more ease, less struggle, good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Uh, the matter of who is, ren- who is renouncing? Yes. Isn't there a danger that we that we start to create some separate selfness. Oh, like in these intentions, I renounce whatever. Um, yeah, yeah it's any quote self improvement. Yeah, self improvement. Yeah. Um, in the end, we would want to let go of the idea that we are the ones letting go. <laughs> Renun- that work? Renounce, renounce, renunciation. Yeah, yeah, eventually we'll now renounce the act of doing the renunciation. But my sense is that comes about naturally, and that it's okay, to, and that uh, especially once we've observed a few times this process of looking at a pattern and seeing it change into something else, um, I think I mentioned that we should be careful that we don't know what it's going to be. Um, we don't know how something is going to untangle. Um, I mean, sometimes we know generally that it's going to go to something better, but it can be surprising. You know, we like I, you know, like we think we're working with our anger and we're going to become loving. We might become patient, or we might become generous. We might realize that we were angry because we were holding onto our stuff stingily. And we don't know the cause always, and so it lets go because the stinginess lets go, and then we become generous. So. Once we see that a few times, we start to be a little more humble about whether we get to choose how things let go or what's going to be there after this unwholesome pattern breaks up. That's my experience, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like the the metaphor, um, but if not the star of our own then what? Then what? Huh? <laughs> um, I guess that's another one. We'll, we'll have to see what comes into that. It can be that we can have a sense, you know, without it being too weird, um, a sense that things are just unfolding and it's not really about us necessarily. Um, my teacher talks about changing from a stance that is self-centric, not necessarily self-centered, but it tends to be that, self-centric, to situation-centric. And we can understand that sometimes in particular situations, like if we're at a meeting 
you know, work, just a work meeting. You know, we can approach it as, this is what I need to get out of this meeting. I'm here as a representative of my department. I want to make sure X, Y, Z happens. Sometimes we have that stance. Or we could be more like, okay, this is a group of, you know, directors of this division coming together. What is it that would be best to have happen in this overall situation that's going on? And I'm not saying it's easy in a given work political environment to do that, but you can maybe get the concept. And then if we, you know, what if we walked around the grocery store, not with a sense of, I'm just going to go find everything I need and, you know, navigate around all the carts that are in the way and find the shortest line so I can get out. That's an approach. Or we could go to the grocery store with a sense of, everybody here is trying to get their food, and I'm just going to move with that. And... Um, you know, maybe connect with the cashier on the way out and walk in a way that doesn't get in the way of the woman carrying the baby and the cart at the same time. You know, it's more situation-centric. So I don't know if that starts to give a sense of some other possibility. It can be a light thing that we do first, but just, you know, not so much making it about my, this the unfolding of my story, but the unfolding of what's happening. Yeah. Perspective. It's a perspective thing, yeah. It sounds like... It could also be a koan, if I'm not the hero of my story, then what? What? Then what? Yeah. Not knowing. Yeah. What story? What story? <laughs> Who says anything is unfolding? Yeah. So to start, it's not like there's one right answer or one way that's better, or if you get to this step, we know you're really getting there, you know, whatever it is. Uh, it's just it's just starting to play with other possibilities. That's the other thing we start to do when we're working on these patterns. Patterns are very set, you know, it's like there's A, B, C, and then we get the same situation, A, B, C happens. And we start thinking, well, why does it have to be like that? You know, couldn't it be something else? And so just like opening to other ideas um, can be very freeing. Even if our life doesn't change dramatically, just having more open, then the new things start to happen in ways that we can't really predict. Yeah. All right, we're a little over, so I guess we'll, we'll stop here. Take care. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.